Okay, so last week in chapter 13 of Revelation, we were introduced to another beast. It said, uh, John writes, and I beheld another beast, so he's talked about the first one, coming up out of the earth instead of the sea. First beast, sea, second beast, earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spake as a dragon. And we covered that uh, pretty extensively. Let's dig a little deeper into the text, and we're going to cover verses uh, 12 through 18. Now, as I kind of said when we started off, we tend to think of individuals today as being the Antichrist. Uh, we thought that Hitler was the Antichrist, Mussolini, Pol Pot, uh, on and on and on. You come to different people. At, and, but today we are going to read about the beast, the first beast coming up out of the sea, representing the Gentiles, both representing generally the Roman Empire, and then specifically a man named Nero. And after you hear what Nero was about from historians and what he did to Christians for three and a half years before offing himself with a sword, I'm hoping to convince you that we can settle this and realize that this guy came, went, did, done, over. And there, isn't, there aren't many people wandering around even like Hitler, who were like him personally. Uh, a very different person. Is she okay? Okay, she's all right. So let's read verses 12 through 18. Talking about this second beast, he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast." And the image of the beast that should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Last week we talked about the statues of Nero and how those emperors who followed Nero caused people to worship those statues. As if it was Nero himself bowing down and that there was the common belief that statues of the person contained the spirit of the person so much so that they could speak. This is all filling in with what is historically known. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand. This is not the mark of the beast. To receive a mark in their right hand and in their forehead. Two places that no man might buy or sell, save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, we have so much talk about how that's coming, and that Lucent right now is developing technology. I've heard this since 1980-something, 
that they've developed technology that's going into under our skin, subcutaneous technology that when you go to the store, you don't have to take out your card, you don't have to take out your cash, you just scan your hand because it's going to be in your hand. That's the mark of the beast so that you can buy and sell and trade. And if you don't want to have that put in you, you won't be able to do it. Now, that may be coming along the road. I mean, just in sheer economics and an ability to get things done, it's possible. We know that there is subcutaneous devices that are put in people today, and like we can put things in dogs that tell us, you know, you scan the dog and it tells us who he is and where he came from and things like that. And that is being used on humans. And yet we take what is said here anciently and we say that is happening now, and so be careful. And I'm just not convinced that's the case. I think it might look like it, but that's up to you. I mean, if you don't want to receive the technology, don't. But that no man might buy or sell, here is wisdom, John finishes. Let him that has an understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is 603 score and 6. Understand, this was written to who? It was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor at that time. John says to them, hey, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding, seven churches, Asia Minor, uh, count the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. He tells them, so we're going to talk about that. Go back to verse 12. And he that exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So here we read again about this mortal wound. There's a wound in the head of the first beast, mortal wound that kills him, but he comes back to life. And it's good to remember that we've already seen that this is represented in both Nero as the specific individual, because he is continues to live on, as we're going to see, after he even hurts himself. And it is more specifically used in Rome itself, which fell into this deep, after uh, Nero killed himself, it like fell apart and everybody thought this is the end. And then it came back to life and no one could believe it. So it's emblematic both of the person specifically and of Rome generally. Many futurists think the idea of an antichrist coming and there's going to be an assassination attempt and someone's going to take a gun out. Grant, he's going to pull out his big revolver and he's going to, or, or Wendy. If Wendy's using the gun, the beast will never get shot. But uh, uh, Grant has a surefire aim and the beast is going to get a bullet in the head and it's going to kill him, but he's going to rise back up from this mortal wound. You know, that's how the futurists say it. There's two popular preterist views regarding this healing. Uh, the first possibility is the wounded head did, in a sense, come back to life through Nero's successors and his reputation over the course of years. That is one way to see it. And we talked about last week how Vitellius, who was one of the emperors who followed Nero, deified Nero in the eyes of the populace. And he only reigned eight months uh, and was the third emperor to reign in, uh, after Nero's demise, and, and then he was uh, killed. But Vitellius did a lot to keep the cult of Nero alive in the Roman uh, army. Uh, the first emperor, Galba, was reigned only six months. He's the one who's a short time, which we've talked about. Galba was murdered. And then we get to, uh, um, I always say ortho, but it's otho. 
and Otho reigned four months before he committed suicide. So we had Nero commit suicide with a sword to the neck. Then we have Galba reigns six months and he's murdered. And then we have Otho reign for four months and he commits suicide. These Roman emperors, they don't handle the stress too well. They are like all kinds of stuff happening. It's said that Otho paid Nero all public honors constantly to Nero. So even though he had physically killed himself, he was still living among the people. Now, when we start to hear about him, and we're going to wrap it up, and we won't talk too much about Nero after this, um, I'm going to emphatically, I pulled from every source I could find, uh, and there's giant books written about him, but I haven't read, about this guy. And when you consider what he was like as an individual, we have our Antichrist, or we have our beast. Really, it's beast more appropriately. The historians Tacitus, Suetonius, and Zonaris, that's their historian's name, all affirm that after Nero's death, proclamations continued to be published in his name as if he was still alive. So that's one way to see that he comes back to life and that his image was frequently placed on what's called the rostra. That was, um, it was a speaker's platform in Rome, big platform for speakers. They had the image of Nero and they dressed him in all of his uh, uh, kingly or uh, emperor-like clothes. He wasn't even there. He was dead. But they had Nero up on the rostra, uh, dressed in the robes of state. Even Jewish and Christian writers begin to say that Nero was back and reigning in the form of a demon named Belial. So even in Christian writings and Jewish writings, we have them talking about Nero as if he was still reigning on the earth. Jonathan here, a number of weeks ago, wondered if all this was fulfilled, is it possible that when someone puts 666 on their body, that what they're saying is, I really follow after maybe the spirit of the beast or, 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 or Nero. And I think that's entirely possible, that 666 represents what Nero was all about, whether you do it in ignorance uh, or with knowledge, we don't know. So... Uh, Zonaris writes, quote, Nero committed suicide in June A.D. 68. However, a rumor arose and persisted that he had not died, but he fled across the Euphrates River to Rome's archenemy Parthia. And from that, it said, a, a rumor starts that Nero's going to return from Parthia and he's going to destroy us. And, and so, interestingly, this became what's called the uh, Nero Revisit. Redivitus myth. And during decades following Nero's death, decades, according to Tacitus and Suetonius, several pretenders came forward to pretend like they were Nero. And they had some effect upon the people. That's how powerful this guy was in his evil. He had power that continued to reign. All right? By the end of the first century, a further twist was added to Nero's legend. It was said that he's actually going to rise from the dead, not come back from Parthia and not be embodied by a statue, but actually rise back from the dead and return to Rome and seize power. This myth of Nero's return was so powerful that it captured popular fancy and that found its way into uh, Christian writings too, the idea that he's going to come back from the dead. So here the triumphant Nero was sometimes even pictured as the Antichrist, there's two books, Ascension of Isaiah and Sibylline Oracles, all speak of Nero being Antichrist, 
Last week we talked about Antichrist is fulfilled. We don't have to worry about Antichrist because Antichrist was anybody who would say Jesus didn't come in the flesh according to John. Also, and again, Otho uh, himself claimed to be Nero embodied. He called himself Otho Nero, and he used Nero's name in official letters. We have evidence of that. And um, even letters that went as far as Spain, Otho put Nero to his uh, title. So uh, Gentry notes, um, in the pagan literature, references to the expectation of Nero's return after his fall from power, meaning his death, can be found in the writings of Tacitus, Suetonius, Diocassius, uh, Zilophenus, Zanaris, and Dion Christosom. So we have a lot of historians citing Nero is coming back, and it made its way into historical narrative. We also remember that a second possibility, that was the specific, Nero himself. The second possibility is that Nero represented uh, this beast being wounded was the Roman Empire. And this actually happened in, uh, and we've covered this, I know, but in the first century Rome, upon Nero's death, uh, in 68 AD, June of 68 AD, the Roman Empire fell into chaos and civil war. And what followed was that year of the four emperors that we de described on the board a few weeks ago. Uh, Galba, six months. Otho, four months. Vitellius, eight months. And then uh, Vespasian, beginning in December of 69 AD, all before 70 AD's destruction. Nero's death by the sword is a type of mortal wound that John said the beast would receive. And preterist Richard Anthony says, and Ken Gentry agrees, that the healing of this wound is probably also seen in the general sense of Rome looking like it was completely done for and suddenly rising back up out of the ashes to power. Upon his death the Roman imp of Nero, the Roman Empire's founding family suddenly had no representative. Okay? Gentry writes, listen, quote, the bloodline that had given birth to, extended, stabilized, brought prosperity to Rome and had received worship from the Roman Empire was cut off forever at the death of, of Nero. Boom. Because remember, Caligula was his uncle and all of these guys dating back, August, Augustus, were all related to Nero. That was a line. And it was cut off when he killed himself. And so it's called the Julio-Claudian House, and it became extinct, and the empire was plunged into civil wars of horrible ferocity, dramatic proportions, so Rome appeared ready to topple. Done. We have no leadership. The general Vespasian, during that time, he pulled back. You remember we talked about this. There's a space of silence. It says there's a space of silence in Revelation. We talked about that. That is when there was no uh, war being heaped uh, by Rome upon Jerusalem, upon Israel. There was a space of silence. Suddenly, they just stopped attacking. And that gave the Jews and that gave the Christians a time to make reparations and prepare for anything else that would come. Well, during that silent time, it was Vespasian. He said, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of these other places we're warring in. Uh, uh, we need to fix the turmoil that the Roman Empire is under, and that provided that space of time. Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius all record that Rome at this time was brought to as close to utter ruin as possible. With Josephus saying in his wars, he writes wars, uh, that every, quote, every part of the habitable earth under them, 
that's the Roman Empire, was unsettled and in a tottering condition. So that says, uh, that's another way to see the wounded head beast, the Roman Empire, having received a wound, but then coming back from it. So we see the specific in Nero himself, and we see the general in the Roman Empire. It wasn't until Vespasian took the throne in December of 69 AD, initiating the Flavian dynasty, that's an entirely new dynasty, that stability was restored to Rome, and then once stability was restored, guess what Vespasian said? Let's go back to Jerusalem and take care of those rebels and put them in their place. And so that, that's what happened. So let's read verse 13 and 15 regarding the second beast. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. We covered this last week, how there were men who would say, I'm not going to worship Nero's image, and they were put to death. And how this was going on all around, and how they believed as people that statues could be filled with the spirit to speak, as if they were alive. So we covered how that was fulfilled through Vitellius and then the others. We also talked about how these uh, were put to death. Last week, someone asked where it speaks of the beast coming out of the sea representing Gentile nations and the beast rising up out of the land, the land representing Israel. Where do we get this idea that seas, water, rivers are Gentile invading armies and land is Israel? If you go to Daniel chapter 7, that is where it begins because there uh, the sea is identified clearly, straightly as the Gentiles. And so it begins there in Daniel chapter 7. And if the Gentiles in the Bible are called the sea or the waters, then it's, it was just through uh, uh, there was assumption that Israel would be referred to as the land because that's what the, who the Bible is all about. And so that's where it starts. And as we have studied Revelation, if you keep with that model, it holds water, uh, no pun intended, through our study. So verse 16 and 17, this second beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Got to have 666, you got to have the number of his name, whatever it is, you've got to have it. And then John concludes, here is wisdom. Let him that understands stands count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and six. So selling and buying was limited only to those who bore the mark, uh, the name of the beast and the number of its name. Fulfillment scholar David Clark writes, quote, This was to boycott or ostracize the Christians and deprive them of the common rights of citizens or the common rights of humans. The pressure of economic distress was to be laid upon them to compel them to conform. Conform to what? To worship the beast. Worship Nero or you're not going to have the economic ability to buy and sell. David Chilton, quoting Austin Ferrer in 1964 book, says, quote, Similarly, 
the Jewish leaders organized economic boycotts against those who refused to submit to Caesar as Lord as well. The leaders of the synagogues forbidding all dealings with the excommunicated and was going as far as to put them to death. Richard Anthony in 2009 speaks about the allegiance required by Nero during his lifetime. Quote, all those under the jurisdiction of Rome were required by law to publicly proclaim their allegiance to Kaiser Nero by burning a pinch of incense and declaring Caesar is Lord. Upon compliance with this law, listen to this first quote, the people were given a papyrus document called a libius, which they were required to present when they either st were stopped by a Roman police or attempted to engage in buying and selling commerce in the Roman marketplace, increasing the difficulty of that exchange. So we have right there under Caesar that there was a document given to them by Roman name, which probably said by order of Kaiser Nero. We don't know. We don't have that document. But they needed that libelous in order to buy and sell and to identify themselves. There's almost like a passport. Recall that former quote, um, and then listen to the one I've appealed to a number of times in our study of Revelation. This is from uh, Marvin Pate and uh, Calvin Haynes in Doomsday Delusions, 1995. It says, megalomaniac that he was, Nero had coins minted in which he was called Almighty God and Savior. Nero's portrait also appears on coins of the god Apollo playing a lair. While earlier emperors were proclaimed deities upon their death, Nero abandons all reserve and demands divine honors while still alive, as did Caligula, his uncle, before him in A.D. 37 to 41. Those who worship the emperor, Nero, received a certificate or mark of approval, Greek called karagma. Karagma, they received that, and that's the same word that's used in Revelation 13, 6. Karagma, they received a mark. Uh, in order to buy and sell. In verse 16 here, ask yourself, were John's original readers meant to understand that the followers of the beast would receive these marks, these papers, this ability to uh, have commerce? When they read that, would they see what it meant? Of course they would see what it meant. And if so, then the two quotes I just read to you lend great credence to the fact that the beast was Nero of that day. Um, we can also wonder if John's language harkened back to the Old Testament where uh, Moses tells them that God tells the children of Israel, as a sign on your hand, they shall be frontlets between their eyes, talking about the law, and that there's some interplay between uh, how the Jews today, Orthodox Jews, will have the phylacteries bound to their wrists of the word of God and they have those boxes that they strap onto their head that has the word of God in it and that there's some relation to the hand and the head there. Uh, can't tell. At verse 18, however, John appeals to the wisdom and understanding of his reader. This is where it gets big and it's, this is just the most salacious little line here. Uh, uh, but he, his reader, he says, look it, I can tell you how to figure out who this beast is. Uh, the number of the beast. Here is wisdom, John writes. Let him that has understanding count. Now, that word in Greek means solve. Okay? So this was written to the seven churches 
And John tells them in his revelation, solve what I'm giving to you. They had to have had that ability to solve that equation. Or else John was lying to them and they sat around doing mathematical equations and could never solve it. It had to have been something that believers, mostly converted Jews at that time, would have been able to calculate. Because he tells them, here is wisdom, let him that has understanding solve the number of the beast. 2,000 years later, we're still trying to solve the thing. He writes it to them and he says, look it, do it. For it's the number of a man. How many clues am I going to give you? And it rhymes with Wazar Wiro. No, he doesn't say that. But he says, and the number is 600, three score, and six. Okay, what do you need? Solve this. Here's the problem. Count the number. Figure it out. And today we have Damien with the 666 on his head. And we've got bikers with 666 tattooed on their necks. And it is just, it's just taking something and making it more than it was. So while the beast has so far been betrayed as the empire, it's clear that in this instance, in verse 18, we're talking about the individual. Why? Because the number is the number of a man. All right? So ask yourself, did John, simple question we should ask, expect his audience to be able to do this uh, calculation um, and therefore, thereby know the identity of the beast? Did he expect them to be able to do it? Of course he did. If he didn't, then we have the most ridiculous thing in Scripture directed to the seven churches. Clearly he did. I think it's really important to remember because it shows that in all probability, John is not referring to a 21st century antichrist or beast or whatever you want to call him. In almost 99.9%, John is not talking about that. He tells them in there to do the calculation. So, John clearly tells his readers that through the application of wisdom and their understanding, they had the ability to solve the number of the beast and therefore get the identity of the man. For it is the number of a man. Okay? Back if I lived in that day, I would have had a number. Because the Jews were big on numerology and having associated names associated with numbers. And you've heard of things like the Bible code, where certain scriptures do certain things with numbers with the Jews. Very big stuff, right? So numerology was big. They had a, what's called a gematra, and we're going to talk about that. And that was their ability to take letters and then give numbers, and that's how they did it. We don't really have a gematra today that we use. If you said, what's Sean's number, you give the social security number. But you wouldn't give the number of my name with associated uh, uh, letters and digits. The beast was not, if, put it this way, if Nero wasn't around, or if the Antichrist was not around at the time that John copied these letters, Jesus said, send them out quickly, this stuff is at hand. But if there wasn't a, a beast then, then it was a really ruthless trick for John and God to pull on those people. Figure it out. Figure it out for the last 2,000 years who it is. You'll never do it, because it's a trick. It's not really around. No. This was just plain what Scripture says. John obviously did not expect his readers who had understanding to have any difficulty identifying the beast, and they simply could calculate it using this cryptogram. 
So using English characters, the Hebrew form of Kaiser Nero is right there on the board. It's the uh, N-R-W-N-Q-S-R. That's using English letters. That's Kaiser Nero written in Hebrew. Uh, Neron Kaiser. The value of the seven letters is there. There is the name in Hebrew, and the value of those letters is up here. So uh, that would be 200, that would be 60, and you can just go through and do it. There's two of these in there, if you can read my writing. So we have 200 twice in there. And if you just take Neron Kaiser, which is the way it would have read in Hebrew, and use the gematria, which is the, 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 the code, you come up with 600 and 66. 666. Nero. It's simple, plain as day, right? Why Hebrew? This is, John is, uh, of course, he's a Hebrew. He was brought onto the uh, apostleship by Christ, came out of Judaism, of course, to follow Christ. Most likely the code was based on the Hebrew form rather than the Greek or the Latin. They also had gematria, Greeks and Latins, uh, but it was to avoid detection. See, the Romans, they would have understood uh, if it was written in Greek or in Latin, but they wouldn't have understood if it was written in Hebrew. They take John's letter, they have it in their possession, they read it, and it says you can calculate the number 666. It's written in Hebrew through a Hebrew gematria. They're not going to be able to come and kill John and everybody else who is doing that. This was a, a letter of insurrection. This was a rebellious letter. This was saying, don't take the number. Suffer through it. Don't line up with Nero. Okay? The readers of Revelation, however, knew uh, Hebrew. In fact, there is question as to whether John even wrote it in Hebrew, at least Aramaic, which was what John spoke, uh, which is a derivative of Hebrew, because of his use of terms like Armageddon and uh, Amen and Hallelujah and Satan. Uh, uh, he also uses the Greek word Abaddon and Apollyon and all those, but, which is Greek. But he uses Hebrew words and Hebrew concepts and borrows from the Old Testament imagery to write Revelation. So it certainly would have been um, embraced by a Hebrew crowd. Uh, Don Walker, he's a uh, fulfillment, concurs saying, Let us remember that John is writing from the Isle of Patmos, where, there has been, where he has been imprisoned, banished there by who? This letter uh, would have been in all likelihood carried off the island by Roman soldiers. John had to send his message in code lest his captors understood the reference to Nero himself. So he couldn't say, hey, here's, the, uh, here's who the beast is. Nero. I mean, it's instant death sentence. So instead of openly stating the beast, he left a clue that every Hebrew would understand. If you have wisdom and understanding, solve this puzzle. Um, there's another interesting factor in this mentioned a few weeks ago by a brother David who visited with his wife and it comes through what's known as a textual variant in manuscript evidence. Textual variants are when one manuscript uh, source says something and another manuscript source contradicts in some way, shape, or form what the other source says. Textual variants are all through uh, the scripture but they usually don't amount to anything. Uh, they are usually commas or what we would call a comma or periods or uh, punctuation or capitals or, and dates. And every now and then we get a word or so thrown in there or added words where there's textual variation. But they aren't much and there's, I don't think there's any that really, really 
uh, cause us to have difficulty with a doctrine, except a few that deal with the Trinity. Some of those textual variations cause theological problems, but there's not that many. Anyway, there's a textual variant in Revelation 13, 18. If you look in your Bibles at home or in your own Bibles here in your lap, you might see in the margins that it might say in your Bible that the textual variant here is some manuscripts read 616, okay, instead of 666. And the fact is that the number 666 in some ancient manuscripts has been changed to 616. And it's not an accident of a copyist. This was purposefully done to change it to 616. Why would a copyist do that? Change the Hebrew gematria of 666 to 616. Uh, well, 666 and 616 don't even look alike when they're spelled out completely, or the numbers when they're written. So it wasn't a mistake in that way. In all probability, it was on purpose, intentional, and a strong case has been made for the following probability. John was a Jew, and he used the Hebrew spelling of Nero's name to give us the number 666. As time went on, when others were reading it, maybe Latin speakers or more Greek and less Hebrew speakers, One of the copyists may have said, we can make deciphering this name easier by changing this from a Hebrew gematra to a Latin. Because in the Latin gematra, 616 spells Neron Kaiser. But in the Hebrew, after time, it probably became difficult to, what does this even mean? And so as a means to clarify, someone decided to change that letter. 616 in the Hebrew does not spell, I was always the impression that it did, does not spell Nero. So what happens is people say, oh, but the textual variant says 616 is really what should be there. We have manuscript evidence for that, and that doesn't spell Nero, so your idea that this is Nero is gone. But in reality it does, but only in the Latin, and that was the language that took over as time went on, replacing the Greek and the Hebrew. Okay? So this would explain the conjecture or the rationale for deviation of a copyist. So a non-Hebrew mind might more readily understand who that beast was. Uh, the manuscripts varying 616 today are almost non-existent. We don't have, uh, but we know that they were there. Irenaeus, who was writing between 130 and 200 AD, pretty, pretty close to Christ's time, in his work Against Heresies, Irenaeus writes, his language isn't real easy to follow, quote, I don't know how it is that some have erred following the ordinary mode of speech and have vitiated the middle number in the name, deducting the amount of 50 from it, so that instead of six decades, they will have had it that there is but one. Others then receive this reading without explanation, some in their simplicity and upon their own responsibility, making use of this number expressed one decad, while some in their experience have ventured to seek out a name which should contain the erroneous and spurious number. And that's a long, ironious way of saying uh, this changing of 666 to 616 was around when I was around, and that's 150 AD to 200 AD. So it, it, was, it was happening relatively early. Uh, I'm going to take some research from uh, a Brother Adam, not Guyman, 
and it rounds out the descriptions of Nero, as we, uh, which are important to the studies of Revelation. We looked in the first ten verses of this chapter, showing that Nero fit the description of the first beast in the specific and in the general sense. Then we introduced the beast's main advocate, a second beast, rose up from the land, and we gave four different views of which of what that second beast could have been rising up from the land. Then we examined the healing of the first beast's mortal wound, the mark of the beast, and the fact that its identification is the infamous 666. Even though we've discussed some of Nero's beastly horrors, we're going to look more closely at his character and the atrocities he committed to put them all together. It's a little bit redundant for some of you. And in doing so, we'll see that it certainly fits the beast as, as he is described. When we started in part one of chapter 13, we examined the details regarding Nero's campaign and persecution of Christians from November 64 A.D. to June 68 A.D. That's a 42-month period, three and a half years. God told John, that's how long the saints are going to have to suffer this, three and a half years. Notice that God allowed the Christians to suffer during this time. And we're not talking about just like, well, I'm a little bit hungry today. We're talking about unbelievable suffering at the hands of Nero. Um, some of these details will be quickly summarized. And uh, first we're told by numerous church writers, Eusebius, Lactanius, Sulpus, Servius, that Nero was the first emperor to persecute Christians, first Roman emperor to persecute them. Um, Clement of Rome, 30 to 100 AD. This is going way back to church history. Clement of Rome said, quote, Nero targeted a vast multitude of the elect through many indignities and tortures. <laughs> These tortures included, according to Tacitus and his book Annals, being wrapped in the hides of wild beasts, torn to pieces by dogs while in those hides, fastened to crosses and then set on fire, and that when darkness fell, they might illuminate the night. We've talked about that. Some estimations say that Nero killed as many as a quarter million Jews. I think from everything I've read, that's hyperinflated, but it's probably much closer and more realistically to 100,000 Jews. I mean, Christians, excuse me. He killed I don't think it's a quarter million Christians, but 100,000 is a very reasonable number. 100,000 Christians put to death by this single guy. Christians alone, okay? Uh, and that happened in a three-and-a-half-year period of time, which works out to about 85 Christians a day in the Roman Empire, losing it through torture. Uh, if we take that number into our calculations, the real Christians remaining after Nero's reign, which ended before 70 AD, the bride of Christ or the church would have been small. I mean, it could have been really dwindled down. So when he came, his taking his church, the number may not have, nobody could have missed them. I mean, in that day and age, no, people didn't know really, you know, people are coming in and out. So if that church disappeared suddenly from Christ taking it to save them from what was happening, it wouldn't have been a big loss, especially with Nero having killed 100,000 Christians before it happened. Those 100,000 Christians were going to return with Christ 
And that's what scripture tells us. And so that would have happened in the clouds, the angels singing and, and the saints with him, angels and saints coming back with him. So it wasn't like they lost out on anything, but they did mar- get themselves martyred. Back to Nero, his vast garden was lit at night and he provided raunchy entertainments of every kind. Uh, some believers were beheaded. Paul, by tradition, was beheaded. Peter crucified upside down. Uh, while others were thrown to lions, exposed to cold till they froze to death, drowned in rivers, thrown in cauldrons of boiling oil, daubed with pitch, and burned as torchlights. The persecution came about after Nero's Jewish wife persuaded him to blame the Christians for burning 14, um, 10 of 14 divisions in the Roman uh, Empire. Legend has it that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Some Historians uh, discount that. Suetonius and Cassius Dio say that's just a myth. Others, Tacitus, uh, no, uh, Dio and Suetonius said that's what he did. Uh, Reverse it. Tacitus says, I doubt that. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Augustine, and Jerome. Remember those four names. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Augustine, and Jerome. They, they date in their writings from 150 A.D. to 420 A.D. are among the early church writers who stated that Nero was the beast foretold in the book of Revelation. So that is four main early church fathers saying that's who it was. Of course, we've lost that as time's gone on and dispensationalism and futurism has taken hold because of Darby and Schofield Bible and imputing this whole new series of ideas into it. But if we're looking at a historical precedent, precedent, it was uh, uh, then that it was Nero. Jerome even stated that there were many in his time who shared this view because Nero's of, of Nero's outstanding savagery and depravity. In Richard Anthony's book, The Mark of the Beast, we read more details about Nero's life and his character, substantiated by Suetonius in his book Nero and other historians who lived during the first two centuries A.D. According to Suetonius, he murdered his parents. He tried 30 times to kill his mother. For some reason, he was having difficulty putting her out. Killed his wife, killed his brother, killed his aunt, and many others close to him and people of high station in Rome. He was a torturer. He was a homosexual rapist, meaning he raped uh, uh, boys and men, and he was a sodomite. He was married to two young boys, and he paraded them around and called them his wives. We're talking about this guy. You are talking about one bad dude. One of the boys, whose name was Sporus, Nero castrated him. He also devised a game where Nero covered himself with animal skins and then he was let loose in cages where people were tied to stakes and he came and he devoured their male and female parts with his mouth till they died. Nero. Then, of course, he initiated the war against the Jews where a million plus Jews were slaughtered uh, under his reign. Ken Gentry in his book, Before Jerusalem Fell, says Nero divorced his first wife, Octavia, in order to marry Papea, his mistress. Papea then gave orders to have Octavia banished to an island where in 62 AD she was beheaded. Three years later, when Papea was pregnant and ill, Nero kicked her to death. For his own entertainment, according to Roman historian Suetonius, Nero compelled 400 senators 
These are senators in the Roman government and 600 Roman knights, some of whom were without any blemish on their reputation to fight against each other until the death. The Roman historian Tacitus, 55 AD to 117 AD, knew Nero as the one who put to death so many innocent men, and Pliny the Elder, 23 to 79 AD. We're talking really, really early historian writings called Nero, the destroyer of the human race and the poison of the world. As stated in Revelation 13:2, the beast is described as having a mouth like a lion's mouth. That's this beast. And it's revealing that Paul in, in uh, 2 Timothy 4, he describes when, that he was experienced deliverance from Emperor Nero as being rescued from the lion's mouth. As fitting uh, is this quote, Apollyanus of Tyana, a Greek philosopher, he writes, quote, In my travels, which have been wider than every man yet accompanied, I have seen many, many wild beasts in Arabia and India, but this beast, that is commonly called a tyrant, I know not how many heads it has, nor if it be crooked by claw and armed with horrible fangs. And of wild beasts you cannot say there was ever known to eat their own mothers, but Nero has gorged himself on this diet, end quote. Apollyanus was not the only contemporary of Nero to refer to him as a beast. Josephus and Suetonius also did. He, was, uh, execute, he executed two of his closest advisors, caused another one to commit suicide. Returning to his crimes against believers, he had them drawn and quartered, tie their arms, horses go. He had Christians tied to tusks of elephants and have them face each other and then fight each other with the Christians tied around the tusk. Uh, many were disemboweled while alive and still others were sawn in two, but they could only use palm branches, symbolic of Christ and bringing the Prince of Peace, to saw the Christians in two, which took probably three time, five times as long as using a common sword. Loman wrote the following concerning Nero's garden parties. The most horrific stories of Nero's brutality involved the lighting of his garden parties. It was known that in order to light his three and four day garden parties, he would have Christians impaled with large wooden posts and while still alive, struggling for breath, would have them covered in flammable tar and oil and light them on fire. He would place the posts along the outskirts of the large garden, palace garden, and along the roads to light the way for his guests. Often, quite often, the events listed above would be done in front of rather large audiences in the arena. He would end these events with tortuously long musical performances that attendees could not leave under the penalty of death, including ruling senators of Rome. Under Nero, John was tarred and feathered, boiled alive, and yet he miraculously survived and then was exiled to write Revelation. This is according to the testimony of early church writers such as Tertullian and Jerome. Nero is the beast of Revelation. Period. And with that, you all have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Questions or comments? That is debauchery. Unbelievable. Reading it makes you ill. Nothing? All right. Let's pray. <coughs>
<clears throat> thank God he's dead. And may his spirit be dead. Lord, we thank you for this history. We thank you. I stop and thank you personally for the Christians who came before us. Who, uh, you know, we fall prey to, uh, to uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll today. And we fall prey to judging people and gossiping. Uh, they had before them their very lives, and they stood the test, an inspiration. And uh, so we thank you for the spirit filled in them that they went through this in your name and dealt with that trial that was upon them. And we pray that you'll help us to be such Christians, not physically so much anymore, maybe in parts of the world, but mostly by the spirit. And then sometimes that might even be harder for us to just allow you to live and thrive in our opulent world of comforts and, and uh, all that we have. So we pray that we will learn the lesson and understand and that you will open our eyes to the things you want us to know from this difficult, sometimes tedious study of Revelation and that we'll be better Christians because of it. We pray for people on our list. Russ lost his mom this week. Kathy Maggie lost her mom two weeks ago. We pray for Russ and, Cass, uh, and Kathy Maggie comfort and peace. Pray for Annette, continued healing from cancer. We have a lot of people who have suffered from cancer. We pray for uh, the Wangsgard family who lost their mom this year, and that this time of year without uh, Heidi around is going to be difficult. And uh, Christmas mornings and Christmas eves and New Year's days, difficult for people who have suffered loss. So we mention anybody who is mourning the passing of somebody now that you'll be with them in spirit, you'll make yourself known and comfort them, and they will find their solace and faith upon you and your son. Pray for our little friend Gracie, who's battling cancer and radiation and chemo, and that you'll bless her and her family, Diana, continued healing of her body. We need her back. Love to have her back, Lord. Pray you'll bless her. Mike, recovering from lung cancer. And for unlimited grace and peace for America and the world at this time and we pray that more people will recognize you as the Prince of Peace and somehow that chord will be struck during these holidays that you are the one who brings it. We love you. We seek your blessing.